Titus chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 5 through 16 this morning. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Remember, this is the Apostle Paul writing to his friend Titus. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. You may be seated. Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing and honoring in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name alone that we pray. Amen. We had a session meeting this last Wednesday, and I warned the elders that we were going to be talking about them this Sunday. A couple of them said, then, I don't know if I want to show up. <laughs> but don't worry, guys, it'll be good. Um, uh, this, uh, over the last couple of years, I've been uh, indulging myself by studying the life, uh, whenever I can, of Francis Schaeffer. Uh, it started uh, by listening to some lectures that Covenant Seminary has put out uh, regarding the uh, early life and later life of Schaeffer. And uh, recently, I've been going through a book called The Tapestry. Uh, which is really hard to find now, uh, but it was written by Edith uh, about their life. And it's a thick book. It's, uh, it's about the same size as your Bible, if you've got a study Bible. Um, but it's, um, she chronicles their life in there. She includes a lot of letters uh, that her and Francis shared with one another. Uh, I think that's a lost art, the art of letter writing. Um, but it's, uh, it's beautiful to hear uh, the, the things that they would exchange uh, as well. Uh, Without the same communication technology that we enjoy today, um, after World War II, 
Uh, there were growing concerns by Francis Schaeffer and others in the conservative evangelical church about what was happening in Europe. After the war, uh, they were concerned about the state of the church there. Uh, we didn't have the internet then, so they didn't know exactly what was happening. And so they decided that someone should go over there to, to get a sense of what was happening. Uh, liberalism was, uh, was, was wreaking havoc. There's probably no better way to put it uh, in the church, uh, not only in America, but also in Europe at that time. And they wanted to get a sense of what the evangelical church uh, was dealing with there. So uh, they sent Francis Schaeffer, and he spent 90 days there during a summer uh, visiting different churches, different pastors, getting a sense of what, uh, what the church was dealing with and struggling with there. And uh, after Schaefer returned after these 90 days, he reported back uh, that the evangelical church had survived the war, but it was weak. It was weak. And after some discussion, it was then decided that it would benefit the church in Europe greatly if someone would go over there, kind of as a missionary, to strengthen what remained. That was kind of the task that they were going to give this person. And of course, they chose Francis Schaefer. Um, so his task was to go to Europe, they didn't specify where, and to do this job of strengthen what remained of the churches. Um, imagine if that was your job description. What would you do? Uh, we don't care where you go, but we want you to strengthen what remained. So Schaefer, the Schaefers packed their bags and they headed off to Switzerland, uh, seeking God's direction on how to fulfill that calling of strengthening what remained. And it wasn't until seven or eight years later that the Schaefers actually started Labrie, which is what they're known for, uh, this famous place called The Shelter, where people came to know the truth and where they could ask honest questions about Christianity and about the good news of Christ as he's revealed in the Bible. So Titus has a very similar task to that of Schaefer, but 1,900 years before Schaefer. Paul left Titus on Crete so that Titus could... Um, put what remained of the church in order, as we see here in Titus 1, verse 5. Paul knew full well that if there was going to be order, that, that if there was no order in the church to protect the truth, then the truth would often get lost. A false truth then takes over. And so guarding this truth is extremely critical in the life of the church. So last week, Paul showed us in the introduction that the faith in Christ and knowledge of the truth go hand in hand. They're very important. They go hand in hand with one another. Faith and truth working hand in hand then lead to godliness. Faith and truth lead to godliness. And as we said last week, the grace of God displayed in the gospel compels us to godliness. But what happens when a false gospel, when false truth is being preached in the church, like what was happening on the island of the Crete? False truth and false faith then lead to false works. And what we have is a false gospel. So because false teachings were disrupting the church then on the island of Crete, Paul urges Titus to appoint godly elders who will steward this truth of God. He wants them to be raised up as God's stewards and overseers of the truth. 
So what was going on on the island of the Crete, on, on, on the island of Crete? Well, we know that they are always liars, that they are evil beasts, and they are lazy gluttons. Um, beyond that, we don't really know exactly what was happening. Paul mentioned something about Jewish myths. He mentioned something about the circumcision party, but we're not exactly clear on what this false truth, uh, this false gospel that was being taught. In other, in other gospel, um, excuse me, in other letters, Paul often uh, is very clear on what false truth he is refuting, uh, but we're not exactly sure here. Based on his reference to the circumcision party, we can assume that the, the problem was similar to the problem in Galatians. The circumcision party was probably a group of Christians who had converted from Judaism, but had maintained that certain aspects of Judaism were still required for people to be Christians. And the main requirement that they often put forward was circumcision. But Paul teaches very clearly in the book of Galatians, which we studied a couple of years ago now, that circumcision is not a requirement, not a requirement whatsoever for faith in Christ. In Galatians 5 or 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working itself out through love. So the Bible is very clear that, that the only requirement for salvation is faith in Jesus Christ. Anytime you add anything to the gospel, what happens is that you lose the gospel. This is exactly what was happening on the island of Crete. So Paul warns Titus that these false teachers must be stopped. And he says in, in verse 11 of chapter 1, he said, They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain, which should not, uh, what they ought not to teach. So what does this mean exactly, that they were upsetting whole families? How could false teaching upset whole families. Well, if you are ever having a get-together with your family, say for uh, a birthday celebration or for a holiday, what are the two topics that they say that you should never bring up in those situations? Let's hear them. What is it? Politics and religion. Because what is, what is that going to do? It's going to upset whole families. Um, so we don't talk about politics in a religion, because differences in opinion to these two areas can cause a great disruption. Um, I remember a time back in uh, uh, back when I was still single in my early 20s. Uh, I went to visit my sister. Uh, she was living in North Carolina in a small rural town. Lots of country roads, lots of farms. Um, uh, just a, a nice, quiet place to live. And uh, she attended a church there, uh, a traditional uh, Dutch Reformed church. It was never a big church, but the members who were members there attended faithfully generation after generation, uh, multiple generations in that church. But then something happened in the mid-1990s. Uh, the denomination made some decisions that the conservative churches did not agree with, uh, it caused divisions in the denomination. It trickled down into various churches. You guys have seen this all a thousand times before. Um, what happened in this church is that this one small Dutch Reformed church became divided. 
Several members decided to leave the church and start a new church just up the road, and so they did. And about half the church stayed, and about half the church left. I'm not going to critique what happened there. It is sad. It happens. Um, the point isn't that. But what happened is, is that the split separated this once unified congregation. Uh, it split friends. It, it split families. It split the, the school that was attached to this church as well. And uh, on the Saturday night that I was visiting my sister, um, we had several of her friends over to just hang out, to play games, to enjoy each other's company. And uh, as the night wore on, it was time for the folks to head home. And as we were saying goodbye, um, I did the courteous thing, and I said, well, we'll see you later, have a good night, we'll see you guys tomorrow. Suddenly, it was dead quiet. And everyone looked at me with wide eyes. I was like, what did I say? I didn't feel like that was a big deal. But uh, as the guests shuffled out and my sister closed the door behind them, uh, she explained to me the big mistake that I had made because there were several people in that group who I would not see tomorrow because they went to the other Mm -hmm. church. And so even in the group of friends, uh, they were divided. And so theological disagreements had caused disruptions in this in this community. And um, honestly, it saddens me. I understand uh, the reason to hold to truth, um, but sometimes the fallout from that is, is disruption. This is just a small example compared to what Paul is talking about in Crete. On Crete, the issues weren't minor theological issues. They were, gro- they were foundational gospel issues, false gospels that were being preached, false teachings that had the potential of wreaking havoc on this young church through the disruption of families. And if the families are disrupted, churches are disrupted. And if churches are disrupted, it leads to a poor display of the gospel. And we know that this is a great tactic that Satan uses uh, to discredit the gospel. Because if he can cause divisions and upset families, and upset churches and denominations, then he can make the Christian community look terrible. And honestly, who's going to want to join a community that is divided against itself? What non-Christian would be attracted to that? But thankfully, God uses imperfect churches for his glory. In fact, in order to portray the gospel of God's grace that is poured out on us, we need to admit as a church that we are not perfect, that we do not have everything together. This circumcision party that Paul rebukes in Titus was proclaiming a message that said, look at me and how good I am by what I am doing because I follow God's law. But the true gospel message of God's grace is this. Look at how amazing God is, despite me, a sinner. The fact that he has saved us through Christ, that he has offered us salvation as a gift, this is the message of the gospel. As a church, we want to proclaim the true gospel and display this true gospel through our actions. So one of the ways that Titus says that, that uh, or Paul tells Titus that he needs to do this to guard the truth is by establishing proper order in the church and by doing this through elders. 
As verse 7 tells us, elders are God's stewards who, pre- who prevent false truth from being preached. Elders do this through, as verse 9 says, through holding firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. That's why when we have elections or nominate men for elders, as we will be doing again in September, we say that one of the qualifications is a, is a man who is able to teach, to give instruction, and not only that, to rebuke those who contradict it. So being an elder is a position of great responsibility. And as Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, that those who serve well as elders are worthy of honor. And he also says in 1 Timothy 3, that it is a position that it is worthy to aspire to. We don't often say that something is worthy to aspire to something, but it is something of worth to aspire to the office of an elder. Paul tells us that. He says that if anyone aspires to this office, he desires a noble task. But here's the issue. Every elder that we will ever elect is a sinner. These qualifications that are listed here in Titus and 1 Timothy, these are tough qualifications. And in order for an elder to teach these things, he needs to practice what he preaches. Um, Because it is virtually impossible to sit under the teaching of someone who doesn't practice what he preaches. And that's why the qualifications of an elder largely involve a person's character. We say this every time we elect leaders. It involves their character. Um, Unfortunately, this past week, Josh Duggar was in the news again. I'm sure some of you saw that. Um, Obviously, the Duggars being a a family here in Arkansas uh, several months ago, uh, it was revealed of the, the abuse that had happened when he was younger. And recently it was revealed that while he was advocating for family and uh, for, for the family unit, um, he was uh, joining a website that helps married individuals to have affairs. Um, that is hypocritical. And he admitted to it. And on a, I wish that God would work in his life. And God is using this time to really break him. And we can see that by the statement that he uh, uh, offered uh, publicly, calling himself the biggest hypocrite. And it's, it's honest. If, uh, if we see a leader as hypocritical, um, his leadership comes into question. Well, here's the struggle. Our leaders are hypocrites. They are. And every one of the elders that we have in our church, including myself, will say that they cannot live up to these standards because these standards are extremely high. But those are the type of people that we want to have in leadership. Those who admit the fact that they cannot live up to these standards only by God's grace. Twice, Paul says that an elder should be above reproach. Now, this couldn't possibly mean that an elder is required to be perfect, because if that was the case we would have zero elders in the church. We would never have any. Um, What he means here by above reproach is that uh, an elder should not be able to be charged with any offense. In other words, the man who lives consistently with his beliefs. He practices what he preaches. 
And as we have been reiterating as we study Titus, your belief in the truth displays itself in the way that you live your life. What you believe about the truth displays itself in how you live. So Paul gives a couple of qualifications here for the office of elder. He gives some negative ones, and then he gives some positive ones. He says uh, elders should not be arrogant, should not be quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, or greedy for gain. Excuse me, greedy for gain. If elders are a reflection of Christ, then this is exactly what Christ was, because Christ was none of these things. Christ was always humble and patient, never indulging the flesh or harming others. And he certainly never did anything for his own personal gain. In fact, the theme of his life was exactly the opposite. Instead of seeking personal gain, he gave up all that he had so that we might be the ones who would gain. Paul says the elders on the opposite end should display these characteristics. He said they should be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Because these are the characteristics of Christ. These are the acts of love that he displayed toward others. And these are the acts that can be displayed because a person knows and basks in the love of God that we have in Christ. And not only these things, but an elder should display the gospel in his relationships in general, but also in the marriage and in the family in particular. Uh, It says that an elder should be a one-woman man, displaying the love that Christ has for the church, as we read about in Ephesians chapter 5. And an elder should be faithful in in leading his family, displaying the gospel to his children as well. So this is what Paul is saying here to Titus, that you need to raise up elders, and elders need to be chief examples of the gospel in your church in order to guard the truth. So if you ask the elders of this church, they would be the first to admit how hard, actually, no, how impossible it is to live up to these qualifications. But a life that is shaped by the truth of the gospel strives to embody these characteristics in order to display the grace of God for the glory of God. We need to always remind ourselves when we talk about striving for godliness, striving to do these good works, it is not so that we gain status before God. It is not so that he would love us more. It is because of the fact that he already loves us and because of our status already before him that we are justified. So we don't do good works to justify but because we are justified. And this is what the gospel is all about. So the calling is to guard the truth of the gospel. And this is for elders. This is very important. It's in their job description. But it's also important for us as Christians in general as well. The elders are called specifically to perform these duties, and it's our role as Christians in general as well. It's up to all of us to be stewards of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Elders are first and foremost the chief example, but it's up to us as well. As parents, how important is it for us to impart the truth to our children? What a great privilege and a responsibility that God has given us in passing on this truth 
to our children. But here's the question then. How can we be stewards of God's truth? How can we pass this on to our children? How can we guard the truth unless we know what the truth is? So as I was talking to the kids this morning, using that obviously counterfeit quarter with them, the only way that we can actually know the, guard the truth is if we know the truth. Uh, those who are trained in the art of detecting counterfeit uh, currency, they don't spend their time studying the counterfeits. They don't spend their time uh, studying the mistakes, in a sense, or the false currency. They spend their time studying the true currency. They know every square inch of it backwards and forwards so that when they're, when they're presented with a fake one, they can know it because they know the truth very well. The same is true with us. We need to know God's truth backwards and forwards so that when we're presented with something that is false, that does not accord with the Bible, then we would be able to spot it as a counterfeit. As Paul writes in his introduction, God's truth is manifest to us in God's Word. In Titus 1 verse 3, it says, At the proper time... God's truth is made manifest in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So what we hold in our hands when we hold the Bible is God's truth. He has given us full access to it. It's right here. It's right in front of us. It's in our hands. The only excuse that we have for not knowing the truth is never taking the time to actually read it to open it up, to digest it. Uh, I don't want this to be a guilt trip this morning, saying you need to read your Bibles more. You need to be spending more time in God's Word. God's not going to love you more because you read your Bible an hour every day. He's not going to love you more because you can show Him your perfect quiet times or devotional times uh, that you are spending. He, you won't impress Him by your perfect schedule. But I will say this. If we truly knew and understood the love that God has for us in Christ, if we truly desired to love God in return, to seek to bring Him glory and honor through all the areas of our lives, wouldn't we want to read and know His Word? Wouldn't we want to do that? So let's begin with the big truth of Titus as we close this morning. So, so what? So, Titus is, uh, the, the book of Titus, the, the big picture here is found in, in Titus 2, verses 11 through 13, where Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, and it's bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, awaiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christ. In other words, God's grace compels us to godliness, to godliness in our lives even today. And our belief in the truth affects how we live. Because false claims of the gospel disrupt not only families, but whole churches, it's important to guard the truth of God. And in the church that begins with the elders... But that doesn't leave everyone else off the hook because we are all responsible for guarding 
the truth of God's Word. What we need to do is to pray for knowledge of this truth that leads to godliness. One of the dangers that um, I think we can run into in our guarding of God's truth is guarding it so diligently, if you can do that, that it leads to arrogance. And I think that's what we're often accused of in Reformed circles, that we guard God's truth so diligently even that we become arrogant in our belief of God's truth. But in reality, when we guard God's truth, the truth of the gospel, what it does is it should lead us to humility. Because the truth of the gospel is this, is that we are sinners. And that God has rescued us by His Son, Jesus Christ. The truth that we are protecting is that we are sinful. And that God, by His grace, has rescued us from our sin. And I pray that we as God's stewards would guard this truth well. Let us pray. Our most gracious God and our Father in heaven, You who have poured out Your grace upon us as sinners, we are so grateful to You for the truth that You have revealed in Your Word the truth that we have access to through these scriptures. We pray for those who you have raised up in our congregation to guard that truth. And I pray that they would serve your church in humility, that they would teach sound doctrine, and that they would rebuke those uh, who do not teach sound doctrine. Uh, Lord, I pray that they would do that in grace and in humility. And uh, we pray for them uh, as they are attacked by the evil one because we know that Satan loves to take down leaders in the church. Uh, Father, we pray for their protection. I pray for us as we are God's stewards, uh, that you would work the truth in us, that we would become so intimately Uh, knowledgeable of your truth, that we could spot false truth in a moment's notice. Uh, Lord, give us a desire for your word. I pray that we would seek to devour it, uh, that it would be a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. Uh, We thank you and we praise you for these things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.